Getting lazy when things are going well. Getting lazy when things are going well. Uh, when I was 16 years old, I got my first part-time job at my local DIY sto uh, store. We sold all sorts of household and gardening uh, equipment, and I had a pretty simple, pretty easy job. I was in charge of keeping the back area clean. I was in charge of putting those little labels on the, on the merchandise and helping the odd customer find what they were looking for. It was an easy job. So in no time at all, I got fairly comfortable. And one day, my boss came up to me and said, Tim, I need you to come out the back. Got something new to do today. And he showed me one of these, a wheelbarrow. And he said, Tim, uh, these arrived flat pack. And we're going to start building them up and selling them to the customers. And we have a customer coming in to buy three tomorrow. So I need you to build it up for me. Now, my, my boss was a nice boss. He didn't give me a task without showing me what to do. So he gave me very clear instructions. In fact, he actually built one of these wheelbarrows up right in front of me. But given that things had been going so well in my job, I'd become rather laid back, rather complacent, and a bit too comfortable with my boss. So as he patiently instructed me on how to put this wheelbarrow together, I started thinking about anything but wheelbarrows. I watched and I nodded along as teenage boys do without listening at all. And before I knew it, my boss was done. It's all yours, Tim. Here are the parts, here are the tools, build up free for tomorrow. Well, I gave it a good go. They looked all right. The customer came in the following day, picked up the wheelbarrows, and within about three hours, the customer was back. Red hot face, fuming, angry. It seems that in my lazy complacency, I hadn't taken on board one key instruction, that that bolt that connects the wheel to the barrow, it needs to be tightened properly. Otherwise, the, the wheel will go one way and the barrow will go another way. And that's what had happened. So for the first time, I saw a new side to my boss, his angry side, as he gave me a toothbrush and he said, go into the back room and clean the back room floor for the rest of the day. And I learned my lesson. It is not okay to get lazy with the boss just because things are going well. As we come to First Chronicles this morning, we see King David learn this lesson the hard way. Uh, things have been going very well for David so far. In contrast to the, the uh, tragic demise of Saul, his predecessor, David has gone to, from strength to strength as God's king. He's been recognized by Israel as God's king for them. He successfully took Jerusalem, the city, for God's people. And then last week we saw how David received the support of his mighty men, uh, warriors who put themselves at great risk in order to honor David as their king. But even as they did that, even as they sought to honor David as king, well, David actually refused to accept their sacrifice and instead poured it out to the Lord. Finally, Israel has a king who is after God's own heart, humble, who, who knew his place, who sought to serve Israel as God's king under God. As we come to chapter 13 today, this positive theme of everything seeming to go so well, it continues. As we're told about the next item on David's to-do list. Come with me to chapter 13, verse 1. Bring back 
the ark. Let me read from verse 1. David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Uh, David continues to show exemplary leadership as God's king. He, He seeks the counsel of the leaders that he's just established over the people. And more importantly, he seeks the will of the Lord as the Lord's king. Now, many of Israel at this point, as we're told, they are spread out across the land. So David wants to gather everybody together to Jerusalem with one purpose, that they might go and bring back the ark of the covenant. Now, I'm sure most of us have seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. So to save us from Hollywood's strange ideas about this rather special box, let's quickly recall what it really meant to Israel. Uh, Back when God first redeemed his people from slavery, when he gathered them to himself at Mount Sinai, he instructed them through Moses to build the ark. It would have looked a bit like this coming up on the screen, this very special box. That's what it would have looked like. It was a large box made of gopher wood, overladen with the finest gold. Inside the ark, because it was a box, inside the ark were kept the commandments of the law. And on top of it, you see that little monument there? Uh, That was, uh, in between uh, those angels, the cherubim, was an empty seat, which was considered the throne of God. His empty throne in the midst of his people. So so the ark symbolized God's active and present rule in the midst of Israel. It contained the law, his word, his law for the people, and it had his empty throne on the top guarded by the cherubim. So as God led them through the wilderness, the ark was carried before the whole camp to to get to symbolize God directing his people to the promised land. When they stopped, the ark was kept in the very center of the camp, in the tent of meeting, to symbolize how God was dwelling as the holy God in the midst of his people. And once they had entered the land, when Israel went out to battle, well, so the ark went out with them to show that it was God who would be ultimately delivering their enemies into their hands. Uh, The ark was the symbol for Israel of God being with them and being for them. It testified to his awesome, holy presence in the midst of the people he had redeemed. And so David knew, well, given that Jerusalem, the city, was now at the center of God's purposes for his people, the city of God's king, well, that's where the ark belonged. And everyone agrees with David and his plan. See verse 4? All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. The people are for it. It's in line with God's desires. Great. Everything seems to be going so well. But as David and all Israel, they set out to retrieve the ark, these seemingly good times suddenly plummet into tragic disaster as they get lazy with the Lord. Come with me to verse 6. And David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is to Kiriath-Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab. 
And David and his men, they arrive at the house where the ark was stored as they're planned, and, and they load it onto this new cart, and they leave all the people with David in great celebration. They sing before the ark and before the Lord with harps and cymbals. But verse 9, we're told, as they reach the threshing floor of Chidon, suddenly one of the oxen that's pulling the cart stumbles. And Uzzah, who was driving the cart, we're told, he suddenly lunges out. And his hand touches the ark in order to keep it from stumbling onto the road. And the second he does, verse 10, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark and he died there before God. Wow. Suddenly, this great celebration turns to uh, the most horrific crisis as a man now lies dead on the ground in the midst of the procession. And David, see verse 11, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah and that place is called Perazuzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day and he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? I mean, he's shell-shocked. He stops this plan right in its tracks. Uh, he's terrified of what God might do if he actually brings the ark back to Jerusalem. What's he gonna, he's going to level the city or something? So David changes direction and leaves the ark in the house of Obed-Edom. It's still a good way away from Jerusalem. But it still begs the question, doesn't it? What on earth is going on? Everything seemed to be going so well. And now this Manuza has been struck down by the Lord, dead on the road. And David, the king of Israel, that, that Israel put their hopes in, he is greatly shaken. Why has this happened? Well, let me try to explain this by telling you about one of more, my more special dates here in Malaysia. A few years ago, I had the privilege of attending a royal tea at the British High Commission. Prince William and his wife Kate, they were on their first royal tour overseas and astonishingly, the Anglican Church wanted me to represent them at this tea. So I got this beautifully embossed personal invite for the tea and along the bottom of it was in very big black bold words, dress code, formal in big capitals. And just in case I didn't get the hint, there was a description as well. Men, that means jacket, tie, trousers, formal shoes. Now imagine if I had disregarded that instruction and I thought, I'm just going to do things my way. I'm going to do it in my style. And so I turn up for that royalty to meet the future king of England dressed like this. My best blue beach shirt, grey shorts, hairy legs, and nothing on my feet. How far do you think I would have got into the British High Commission on the day of the royalty? Maybe I would have gone onto the driveway before being rugby tackled by five security officers. I wouldn't have got anywhere near Prince William dressed like that, wearing that under those circumstances. I should probably be banned from wearing that under any circumstances. But to come into the presence of the future monarch, the future king of England dressed like that, it's just not on, is it? It's so offensive. It's so disrespectful. Well, friends, we appreciate that distinction. How much more should we fear coming into the holy presence of the Lord our God, our creator? 
the one who has given us our every breath, the one who sits above the heavens, who is eternal, who is so highly exalted, not just in power, but more importantly, in his blazing purity, in his blazing purity, coming into the presence of our fiercely good and holy God in the knowledge that we, in and of ourselves, are not good. We are stained by the filthy muck of our sin. Of every time we've decided to shake our puny fists at God by saying, no, I'm I'm going to live my way. I'm going to do it my way, despite the fact that God is the one who has given us our very lives. He alone is worthy of our fear, our praise. Uzzah was struck down because he approached God. He approached the ark that represented God's holy presence in the most disgraceful way. Even though God had made it clear when he first gathered his people to himself at Mount Sinai back in the Exodus, I am holy and that is scary. So you come to me on my terms. Exodus 20, verse 21 to 22 on the screen is, uh, as Moses is being instructed on how the people are to come before the Lord, go down and warn these people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. It's the same words that are spoken of how Uzzah died before the Lord, lest the Lord break out against him. And the Lord had given very specific terms on how Israel were meant to relate to the ark of his presence and carry it. Numbers 4 verse 5. When the camp is set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of goatskin and spread on top of that a cough all of blue and shall put it in its poles." See, the ark was only meant to be carried by Aaron and his descendants, the tribe of Levi. It was meant to be covered by a veil, and it was to be carried by the Levites using special poles that were built for this purpose. And David and the people, in their complacency, had ignored all of that. Uzzah wasn't a Levite. The ark wasn't covered. And rather than using the poles that God commanded them to, they put it on a new cart which was made only worse by the fact that that's the way the Philistines, the enemies of God's people, had carried the ark before. None of this was done on God's terms. And so Uzzah touching the ark, that was the final straw. We see what we're told in Numbers 4.15. As the camp sets out after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. David and Israel were so, so caught up in good times that they're experiencing. The capture of Jerusalem, the gathering of all Israel as one man to bring back the ark with David as their king. They were so caught up in it, they had become complacent. They had become lazy with the Lord. They didn't fear him rightly, and they learnt the hard way. We seek to come into God's presence on our terms As unworthy sinners, we die. For Israel, this was a serious setback. 
Many of them would have feared, well, is David therefore going to just be another Saul? A king who starts so well but ends in tragedy. Thankfully, no. As we come to chapter 14, we're told very clearly God is still for David, his king. Come with me, chapter 14, verse 1. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also masons and carpenters, to build a house for him. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. So despite Uzzah's sudden tragic death, we're now given this marvelous account of God's blessing still upon David. Uh, The nations begin, as the king of Tyre, the nations begin to recognize and serve him as God's king. And so in verses 3 to 7, we're told how David's household grows significantly in contrast to Saul before, whose house now lies in ruins. And verses 8 to 16, we see that David is no Saul who's going to start well and end tragically. He prevails where Saul floundered. Come with me to verse 8. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. So these same enemies that had gained victory over Saul and Israel, now they begin their campaign hearing that David has come to the throne. But see what David does in response, verse 10. David inquired of God, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hands? He inquires of the Lord. He recognizes the Lord as Israel's true king and deliverer. That is what Saul failed to do. Remember back what we're told back in 10 verse 13. Saul broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Saul broke faith, abandoned God's word, and instead depended on fortune tellers for guidance in direct violation of God's law. David's different. He's a man after God's own heart. He continues to fear God and to seek God by his words, even in the midst of his sin. And so verse 10 again, the Lord said to David, go up and I will give them into your hand. David obeys and the Philistines are routed by David that day. And the pattern repeats again in verses 13 to 16. The Philistines come out. David inquires of the Lord. The Lord gives him into their hands. And the result is, verse 17, the fame of David went out into all the lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. So you see the difference between David and Saul as kings? It's not that one was sinful and the other wasn't. We've just seen David's sin. They were both fallen men. No, the difference was that David feared the Lord. Even in the face of his sin, he continued to seek the Lord. Unlike Saul, who hardened his heart against God, who turned away in the midst of failure. So unlike with Saul, whose kingdom was transient, God's steadfast love will remain with David and with his descendants. God will provide a means for his people to draw close to him again. That's what we see in our closing chapter, in chapter 15, as David now rightly fears the Lord according to his word, well, so the ark, the symbol of God's presence, it does come back to Jerusalem. God does draw near on his terms. So 15 verse 1, David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. See how David is so very, very careful now as he seeks to bring the ark, that last leg of the way, back to Jerusalem? 
Rather than relying on his own understanding in the midst of such a good time, he goes back to the law and he starts proper preparation. So an enclosure for the ark is set up in the city. And whilst all Israel will still assist with bringing it back, David, see verse 2, says, No one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. So, So now we have the right people appointed to carry the ark back. And they themselves, as the Lord demanded, have to go and consecrate themselves, prepare themselves for this task because the memory of Uzzah's tragic death, it's still in their minds. Verse 13, because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. David and Israel, they've learned their lesson. The ark will come to Jerusalem. God will come back into the midst of his people, but only on his terms. And so the Levites, they do what they're instructed. Verse 15, the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. It's still a time of great joy, of great celebration. Finally, the ark's coming home. Only the greatest fanfare will do. You know, Donald Trump, he might get his 31-gun salute just for visiting London. But for the ark of the Lord, well, we have this huge list of qualified musicians and singers in verses 16 to 23. Again, Levites, according to the law, David tells them, verse 16, they should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. So it's going to be a loud celebration, but it wasn't going to be a crazy cacophony. Each person's told exactly what they must do. You notice verse 22. I love this verse. Chenaniah, leader of the Levites in music, should direct the music for he understood it. Isn't it good to have a music director who understands the music? It's wonderful. You know, singing songs of praise in an orderly way that is truly understandable, edifying, building up the people. That matters for us as God's people. And I am thankful for our music teams and all of their great labors to lead us well each week in our praise. And trust me, folks, it is no small mercy that I am not personally involved in playing musical instruments on a Sunday. All these proper preparations have now been made. David and his leaders set out, and God blesses their good efforts. And in turn, they bless the Lord. Verse 26, because God helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. The ark finally comes back home safely. It's another really high moment for David and for all the people. The symbol of God's holy presence to bless back in their midst. Well, nearly all Israel are celebrating, but not everyone is happy. You see verse 29, our passage ends on on this strange sour note. And as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David dancing and celebrating, and she despised him in her heart. We've got this little fly in the ointment at the end. There's a reminder that this high note for Israel sadly does not last. As their sinful stubbornness would persist down the ages, kings after kings. So they would turn from God's good law again and so end up being put out of God's good presence. Returning to be slaves under foreign masters again. In fact, Chronicles as a book, it is written to those who have 
endured, who look back on the exile from just a couple of hundred years before, who are living in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, they've come back to the land. They've got the promises of God that in His mercy, His steadfast love, I will still work to restore you to Myself. I will provide a way for Me as the Holy God to dwell in your midst and to bless you again and secure you. I will raise up a descendant of David who will sit on His throne for an everlasting kingdom who will bring a real deliverance from our sins that keep us from entering God's presence safely. Not just for Israel, but for all the nations that we might rejoice in the presence of our Creator and Lord again. We might be brought back home to Him where we belong again, living out our purpose of knowing and delighting in Him and finding our rest in Him. But the first implication that we must draw from these verses in Chronicles today is we come to God on His terms. He is holy, fiercely pure. And so by His nature, He must consume and deal with all that is wicked. And if we are being honest, we all know we've missed the mark before Him. If I invited any one of us, including myself, to write every word every deed and every thought we've dwelt on in the past week on these screens, after confessing all of that, could we remain in this room? I couldn't. And yet God sees that all. He sees the good. He sees the bad. He sees the downright ugly in our hearts. Now, our friends, our only hope of being accepted before Him, of being able to enter into His holy presence where alone there is life, again, it depends not on us, not our terms, not our feeble efforts that can't hope to save from sin. It depends on the King whom God has raised up. It depends on the true Son of David that He did send God's own Son, our Lord Jesus. For He alone has done what is necessary for us to be reconciled to God in every way. As we read in Hebrews earlier, Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now, perhaps you're not a Christian here this morning. Welcome. I'm very thankful that you are here. But let me be clear. As Christians, we do not believe for a second that we can somehow, by our own merits, our own works, work our way into God's good books and get on His right side. The Christian life is not about turning over a new leaf and trying hard. It is about receiving a new life, a full forgiveness of sin, a new right standing before God, as we depend on His terms alone, which is Jesus. And Jesus' finished work, the one who alone paid for our every sin by his blood shed on the cross and then conquered the grave, rising to new life, never to die again. That is what it took to deal with our sin before our holy God. Why would we think we can somehow deal with it ourselves? Remember what happened to Uzzah who neglected God's warnings, who relied on his own understanding. He was consumed in a moment. No, our only hope is to be clothed in the righteousness of God's Son by faith in His finished work. Turn to the Lord Jesus 
if you have not done so. But I I realize for most of us here this morning, we are already rejoicing in that salvation. What does 1 Chronicles speak to us as God's people in Christ? Well, these chapters, they stand as a stark warning that we have no reason to be complacent in our devotion to the Lord, that we must not be lazy with him. Uh, David and his men, as they enjoyed the good times of God's blessing, security, that's what happened. They became complacent. Uh, They didn't take God's holiness seriously, and it cost a man his life. And we might think, well, oh, yeah, but come on, Tim, that's Old Testament times, right? That's, you know, that's not grace. That's not grace time. That's law time. And that's, that's why that happened then. But then we see a similar event in the very infancy of the church. In Acts 4.33, we read, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was good times. Sinners were coming to faith in Christ, and there was spirit-born generosity so that everybody was sharing and nobody went without what they needed. And then came along Ananias and Sapphira, who also claimed to have sold what they had to provide for the needs of the wider church. Acts 5 verse 2. With his wife's knowledge, Ananias kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And as soon as the apostle Peter exposed their deceit before the Lord, we're told, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. This is the church, friends. This is us. This is those who have been called to new life in Christ. Forgiven, yes, in Christ. But only so that we might, by the power of His Spirit now, continually turn from our sin as we rejoice in the security Christ has won for us as our risen Lord. And so we show that our faith is genuine. We show that we belong to Him as we work out our faith, our salvation, with fear and trembling. As we continue each day to repent and believe, slowly but surely becoming more and more the people that God has saved us to be made possible by His Spirit working now. And friends, maybe for some of us right now, the radical obedience that we once delighted to give in response to God's great love to us in Christ, that obedience has faded a bit. Perhaps we know in our hearts we're being pulled toward another affection that is rivaling our love for Christ as Lord. And rather than being quick to repent, we've become complacent. We're tolerating that sin. Friends, don't play the fool with God. We are warned in Hebrews 10, 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, friends, I need to be very clear here. I don't want you to misheard me. If your trust is in Christ, you are forgiven. You are reconciled to God in every way. He could not love you more than his son. But the way in which we show that that is true of us 
is as we continually fight sin in our lives, even in our failures, and we continually turn to Christ for forgiveness, and we continually pursue him as Lord. But if we end up not doing that, because we've become complacent with our sin, what we will find instead is our hearts hardening against our Lord, our healthy fear of him will diminish, and his grace to us in Christ will not matter anywhere near as much, possibly to the point that we start seeing Jesus as nothing more than a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's just something that we keep in our back pocket as we persist in that sin. Friends, our God is a consuming fire. Be wise. Adopt the healthy, fearful attitude we've seen in David today. Yes, he stumbled in his complacency. Yes, he was lazy with the Lord for a time, but he recognized his fault, he confessed his sin, and he trusted again in God's steadfast love, so he repented and he obeyed. We have all the more reason to do that with Christ our King, knowing that he is able to keep us as we pursue him as our Lord. Let's not be lazy with the Lord. Let's be wise and fear him above all. As we look forward to the day when I pray each and every one of us here will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that indeed you are the Holy Lord whose presence can bear no sin. We thank you that you alone have provided the means, the terms for us to enter again into your presence, the full forgiveness, and so new life with you that we have received entirely on the basis of Christ and his finished work. My Father, I pray for those who are yet to still know the joy of that salvation, that you would graciously work, that we would be bowing the knee to Christ as Lord, as our only hope. For those of us who have, help us, Lord, in the light of this warning, to know you rightly, and so to be working out our salvation with fear and trembling as we look forward to life with you. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.